Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4 is as far as we're going to get tonight. Jesus continues in his Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Beware of, the practice, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I'm just going to tell you now, you're probably going to hear some things tonight that go against everything you've been taught about this passage. So be ready for that. Because we're going to take a look at this, and hopefully through the whole of Scripture, you're going to see that some of the things that we've been taught, and I'm going to tell you myself, I used to teach it. Some of the things that we've been taught actually aren't what this passage is saying. The whole of Scripture will show that as we deal with it. Jesus, as I said earlier, continuing his Sermon on the Mount, he now goes into a little bit more detail about what he said in Matthew 5, verse 20. Go to Matthew chapter 5. And look again at verse 20. Jesus had said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've already looked at the fact that he threw that out to get them to get to the point where they'd say, Well, how righteous do we have to be? Because no one ever thought they could be as righteous as the Pharisees. But as you're going to see in this passage, when he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He's also not only talking to them about how they're not to be living, he's also making an indictment against the Pharisees at the same time. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23, and you'll see this a little more clearly. In Matthew 23, we'll start in verse 1 and go through verse 20, uh, so through verse 15. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 15. Listen to what Jesus says here. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens and, that are hard to bear and, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What he's saying here real quickly about the Pharisees is, is he's saying, look, you guys... You go all around trying to make people like, righteous like you or people to be, to be like you. You're first of all not going to heaven yourself. And when you in your religious position convince people they need to be like you, you're making them twice the child of hell that you are. Because it's one thing to know you're in trouble and not deal with it. It's another thing to have the religious leader tell you you're okay. 
You understand what I'm saying? Like, for example, if you know you got a problem with God, but you're not willing to deal with it, because as the Pharisees, everyone knows that they're guilty before God. There's no one that doesn't understand these things by, once the Spirit begins to open our eyes. There's no one without excuse. He's revealed his law to our hearts and whatever. We've laid that all out. So the Pharisees, they may have known deep down that they weren't right before God, but it was far more important that they look impressive before men than they humble themselves before God. But now what they've done is they've taken these people who are seeking to be right before God, and they've told them, if you do these things, you'll be right before God. And so now these people are even convinced by the religious leaders that they're okay, and they're walking around saying they're okay. I've always been real careful in my life to not tell someone, you're going to heaven. I don't want them to ever say, well, Jim's a preacher and he's close to God. So he said, I'm going, I'm okay. Folks, the Bible says that the only ones that know are you and God himself. Now, I can look you in the eye and tell you if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and lived a sinless life and rose from the dead, you will be saved and you will go to heaven. But did you catch how I started that? <laughs> if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then that's how we know what the word of God says. And here he's actually talking about the Pharisees, and he keeps using this word. Has anybody caught it yet? Hypocrite. We're going to deal with that in just a second. Jump over to chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others." But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, we see that Jesus keeps saying, we see it here in verse 5 and again in verse 28. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, so also you outwardly appear righteous to others. And Jesus, back here in Matthew chapter 6, go back to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read it again now, verses 1 through 4, with this kind of context behind us here. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees... You're never going to get into heaven. Yet he now starts saying to the Pharisees, oh, by the way, you're not even close to righteous. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have, for then you'll have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. There's that word again. Do, uh, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the term hypocrite is clearly being used to describe someone who's unsaved. It's very clear in this passage, is it not? I, I, I want you to understand this because it'll help you. We may act hypocritically at times. That doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. You understand the difference? You may act hypocritically at times, but that doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. But woe if you are. 
Well, Jim, what does that word hypocrite actually mean? Well, the term hypocrite comes from the Greek theater. It describes someone who wore a mask. There are those, these are those who want people to see them as something they're not. And the Greek theater, if you know anything about it, all the thespians, all the actors were men. So when they would put on plays and they had to play the role of women and even other men, they would wear masks. They would stand there and hold a mask in front of their face and portray themselves as something they're not. They're wanting people to see them as someone that they're actually not. You know who I really am, but I'm going to want you to see me in this way. The hypocrites, listen closely, are the ones who aren't righteous before God and they know it. But they want you to think they are. And they live their lives for the approval of other people. Again, and I'll get right to you. There are sometimes I act hypocritically, but hopefully I'm not a hypocrite because a hypocrite is one that actually intentionally tries to make you think I'm something I'm not. Go ahead. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah, but yes, but you have to understand, Jesus is the one that can make these statements because Jesus knows everyone's hearts. I'm going to warn you, be careful of ever judging anybody's hearts. You don't know their hearts. You don't know anybody's motives. A lot of times we'll say, well, the reason she did that is because she really, you don't know. You don't know. And we're not to judge people's motives. I also, and I'm glad you brought this up. I also want you, as we deal with this hypocrite in this whole study tonight, that you don't sit and think about anybody else. Because that's the whole point of the teaching, is that you let God talk to you. How many times have we ever heard someone say, preacher, that was a great message. I sure wish my husband was here. He really needed that. You know, we have to be careful about that. And so tonight, as we deal with that, don't think about anybody else. Let God speak to you. Are you doing your righteous deeds in order to be seen by others so they can praise you, or are you doing your righteousness to be seen by God? Now, we're going to go into that in a lot more detail in a little bit. So, Pastor, uh -huh. you said a hypocrite is a noun, right? So just yes. Who they are. But hypocritically, sometimes we act. Exactly. It's not a noun. Exactly. It's an action, it's a verb. So right. It doesn't necessarily mean that's who we are. Exactly. I think that's excellent. As he was saying, if you didn't hear him, hypocrite is a noun. It declares who you are. Hypocritically is an action verb, and sometimes we act in that way, but that's not who we are. Don't be, though, a hypocrite. A hypocrite, again, the Greek term means someone who's trying to pretend to be something they're not. And in this case, the Pharisees were pretending to be righteous, but they weren't. And you're going to see in a little bit why. Remember, Jesus has been trying to reveal the depths of man's sinfulness so that they'll turn to God for their righteousness. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount here so far. And this righteousness that can only be given to us from God because the law demands perfection and none of us are perfect. The only way we can become righteous is if God declares us righteous and gives it to us as a gift. But I'm going to ask you a question. How can God give us righteousness and simply declare us righteous when the law demands perfection, when his holiness demands perfection, because to simply ignore the law would be to lower his standards and then lessen his holiness. I'm going to ask you tonight, and I want you to try to answer this for me. The only way we can be righteous, you hopefully have understood through this part of the Sermon on the Mount, that no one's righteous. 
The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, the purpose of the law is to show you can't keep it. Yet the law said you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You must have never broken God's law in order to be righteous. And there's no one. And we know that the righteousness that we receive is a gift from God where he declares us righteous. But how can he declare us righteous if we've broken the law? Is he ignoring the law? Is he, is he just saying, well, I know you broke the law, but I'm going to say you're okay. I know you didn't pass the test, but I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you a passing grade anyway. By the way, I had that happen to me when I was in school. I had a typing class when I was in high school. And this is back in the day when the electric typewriters were a big deal. We only had three in the classroom, and the rest were the old ones. And Jeannie, you're old enough. You don't even know what an electric typewriter is. I'll talk to you about it later on. You skipped that whole part. And I, this typing teacher actually... Uh, she wanted to teach us how to type properly where we wouldn't look at the keys. Well, I was the fastest kid in the class in typing. And only the top three fastest would, they measure our words per minute every week. The top three fastest get to use the three electric typewriters. But I never got to use electric typewriters even though I was the fastest in the class because when I typed, I would look at the keys. And boy, I was fast. So one day she comes in or I come in and at my typewriter is this piece of paper with a tape on it over the keys. And I had to put my hands under the key, under the paper, and try to type. I didn't know where anything was and I couldn't type. So I would do this and blow the paper and go fast and then it would float down and I go and do it again. Well, she caught me doing it. So the next week I come in and all of the keys are whited out. I literally sat there and said, I'm done. You wore typewriter covers on your heads. Very nice. So you couldn't look. Yep. So there with the keys all whited out, I couldn't tell you what letter was where. And I couldn't pass the class. So there came time for us to get our grades. And she gave me a failing grade. And I said, how can you fail me? She goes, Jim, you never learned to type properly. I can't pass you. I said, well, you do realize that means I will be in your class next year. She said, how about a C? I said, we got a deal. We got a deal. Listen to me. How can God, though, if we've broken his law, how can he just declare us righteous? How can he give us as a gift a passing grade if we've broken the law? To do so would lessen his holiness. How can God declare us righteous? Profession was sacrifice. I like how you worded it. Keep going. A little, more, a little bit more. Because of Jesus. That's the only reason. Folks, go with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something tonight that I know most of you understand, but I feel like God wanted me to, and it was fun last night. I'm going to do it and have fun again tonight. I'm going to preach to you the gospel tonight real quick just to kind of lay the foundation for where we're going. And I pray none of you tune out. I pray none of you at this point actually think, well, I know this, so I'll, I'll wait until he gets to something that I don't know. It's kind of like how we treat the flight attendant when they start to give the safety instructions on the airplane. If you've flown a lot, and I, when I first started flying, of course, I wanted to listen and where are the exits, and I fly so many on airplanes now, that as soon as they start their little song and dance, I go to sleep. I don't want you to do that. Remember the old hymn, I love to tell the story? those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. It goes on and talks about how 
seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet, I think the church needs to be reminded of the gospel. Go to John chapter 5. Now, I'm going to be sharing with you the gospel from the scriptures for a reason, for where we're going to be going tonight. John chapter 5, look at verses 39 and 40. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He goes, you guys, you Pharisees, you, you scribes, you search the scriptures because you think by reading them and doing what it says, you'll have eternal life. These are the scriptures that are speaking about me. Yet you don't come to me for life. You think your righteousness is by your good deeds of obeying what this book says. And you just do what it says and you'll be righteous. The book is pointing to me. You need to come to me to have life. Go to Romans chapter 3. Start in verse 19. Paul has already laid out that the Jews have received the law of God and the Gentiles who didn't hear God's written law have had his law written on their hearts. In verse 19 of Romans 3, we're going to go all the way to verse 31. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember what Jesus had just said in John 5. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So how do we uphold the law? If we've been told that we're set free from the law and the law was just to show us that we're guilty and we couldn't keep it. And once the law reveals our sinfulness to us and we turn to the Savior, we're no longer under the law. How do we then as Christians through faith in Jesus uphold the law? How? Well, definitely through faith, but how? Specifically how? No. Through faith in the one who has kept and keeps the law. By faith in Jesus, we still uphold the law. We don't say the law is no big deal. Ah, it's okay. There's a lot of people out there that think, hey, I've been set free from sin and I'm forgiven. I can live however I want now. That's not upholding the law. That's, that's saying the law is no big deal. Hey, you know, it did show me I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner. Now I'm saved, saved by grace and I'm good. There's a term out there in the, the, for theologians called antinomianism, where there's no law. 
We're not saying, even though we've been set free from the law's penalties and the law's demands because of Christ giving us righteousness, we haven't been set free from the law's demands. You see what I'm saying? We have to be real careful. But we uphold the law through faith in Jesus, who is the one who kept the law and through his life and his death and his resurrection has met the requirements of the law on our behalf. We're not saying the law is no big deal. Now that righteousness that the law was trying to produce that the flesh would not ever let it produce, God still wants to manifest it through us. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to show you tonight that these passages like Matthew 6, we've been taught that we're to not let people see our righteousness. You ever heard people say when it talks about giving, don't let anybody see your giving because you don't want to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I'm going to show you tonight from Scripture that's not what Jesus is saying. Because the Bible is full of passages that talk about doing our righteous deeds before men. Right? Doesn't the Bible say in Matthew 5, do your righteous deeds before men so they may see your, see your good deeds and glorify your Father? So these righteous deeds that the law pointed to that we could never do on our own, Jesus wants to do it through us on a daily basis. So we need to, as you're about to see, not just say, I turn to you for my salvation, but I turn to you on a daily basis to live out the righteous demands of the law. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Go for it. Look through Jesus then as like in the old law, they went ahead all the sacrifices and everything. They were all pointing to what Jesus did. Uh, one sacrifice, so was exactly. that part of the law. Yeah, yeah. He, he met all the requirements of the law and those sacrifices, which Hebrews said can never take away sin because they had to keep being repeated, were pointing to the one sacrifice that has for all time taken away our sin. Yet at the same time, as you're about to see, not only has he met the righteous requirements of the law, we also still daily have to live by faith to let him produce that righteousness that we already have, but let it be seen by others. Let me explain. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 9. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Oh, look at this next verse, though. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of, G of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen closely. He says that the righteous requirements of the law have already been met by Jesus. And those of us who are in Jesus, there's no condemnation. Those righteous requirements have been met. Now, when he goes on and says, 
and talks about in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then it goes, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. Be real careful. A lot of people read that and they say, okay, I love the first three verses of Romans 8, that I'm, there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ. But sometimes I set my mind on things of the flesh. Has anybody here ever set their minds on things of the flesh after you've been saved? I have. That's not what this passage is talking about. When it talks about those who live by the flesh and those who live by the spirit. Have you been given life spiritually through the spirit or through what you've done? Through the spirit. That's what this passage is talking about. The distinction between the saved and the unsaved. Those who think their spiritual life is because of what they do. They're not right with God. Those of us who think our spiritual life, we get it from faith in Jesus Christ, are the ones who live by the Spirit. Remember Galatians chapter 5, verse 25? So I say live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. See, we always read those verses like this means walking in the Spirit. No, no, no. I live by the Spirit because Jesus has made me alive through His Spirit and through, his, through my faith in Jesus Christ. Keeping in step with the Spirit is a different thing. Did you catch that? Galatians 5.25 says, So I say, if we live by the Spirit, if we've been born again through the Spirit, we also have to learn how to keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul's saying here is, if you're in Christ, you're, there's no condemnation. The righteous requirements of the law have been met by Jesus, and you're in Jesus. But then he goes on and says, Oh, and that same Jesus who's already given you his righteousness will give life to your mortal body. He'll actually be able to live his righteousness through you. How did Jesus, who was given a human body like us and tempted in every way with, like we are, how did he not sin? He kept his eye on the Father and by the power of God, because he was also God, he was able to have victory over this flesh. Do you not realize that the righteous requirements of the law, which have already been met and we've been given righteousness, have to be manifested? God wants them to be seen by the world. So... Go to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 6 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all. All our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Listen closely. We all understand that Jesus met the requirements of the law. He did it perfectly. 
He was punished in our place, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ. We've been declared righteous because of faith in what Jesus did. But we forget the beginning of this passage where he says, in the same way in which you receive Jesus now, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Let me just stop. It talks about the elemental spirits of the world. Years ago, there was this movement in Christian circles that really hurt the church. And it was called Christian psychology. Where they were teaching Christians that one of the ways that you can start to have victory over sin is to understand psychology and your makeup and your flesh and how to make a difference. And how to Have you had anybody ever heard you do something for 21 days and it'll become a habit? Has anybody ever heard people saying that? You do something for 21 days and it'll become a habit. And what happened was the church bought into using effort of the flesh in order to accomplish what only the Spirit can accomplish. Do you want to have your life produce righteousness that God has already given you, but now needs to be seen by the world and you'd like to see it as well? Do you want that righteousness to be produced by you doing something for 21 days and then it just becomes a habit? Or do you want that righteousness to be produced by the Spirit of God dwelling within you and evidencing His Spirit within you? Exactly. If it's not from him, it's not righteousness anyway. I don't care if exactly. I don't care if you call it a habit. If you're doing a good habit, but it's your habit, that's works. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to understand the gospel in order to go back to this passage and deal with doing our righteous deeds before men. Because we need to understand that even though I've been given righteousness, that doesn't mean the world sees it. And the Bible actually says one of the evidences that I've really been saved is the evidence of the Spirit produced in righteousness, love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness. But you're never going to produce that righteousness by seeing a Christian psychologist who will help you go back and deal with your mother. All of deity lived in Jesus Christ and lives in Jesus Christ and you have been filled in him who is in all rule and authority. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, everything we need for life and godliness has been produced through Jesus Christ, and it's in us. We've been given these great and precious promises so that through them we may escape the flesh and participate in the divine nature that we've been given. Folks, you need to understand the whole of the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus died for your sins so you'd be forgiven and go to heaven. The whole gospel is he not only died for your sins and gave you righteousness so that you could produce, so that you can go to heaven, but he's also put his spirit within you so that you can allow him to produce the righteousness that he's given you now for the world to see. So, Let's go back now to our passage from Matthew. As I've laid this out as a foundation, hopefully you can see that Jesus is moving now the focus from us and our sin to God and his power. I'm going to say it again. The sermon's making a transition here. You're going to see it as we go in the next few weeks, the transition that's happening. He's been dealing with the, the, the depth of their sin and their need for righteousness from God but now the focus is going to God and his power. Now the Pharisees did their righteousness 
to be seen by others. And many people were impressed. But God wasn't. Does anybody know why? Does anybody know why? Even though the Pharisees had fooled everybody? Because God knew their hearts. Again, I told you to go back to Matthew. Put a bookmark in Matthew. We'll come back. Go to 1 Samuel 16. Again, don't let Satan come and bring anybody else into your mind right now. Let God speak to you. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, as David, sorry, as Samuel has been sent to go anoint one of Jesse's sons, in verse 6, it says, When they came, he looked, as Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't miss that, folks. Don't miss that. Samuel even was fooled and thought, Man, this is probably the one God would have chosen. It's the one I would have picked. I mean, this guy's impressive. He should be chairman of deacons. This person's a hard worker. This person never misses a Sunday. This person is committed. And we look at all the outward stuff. But let me ask you a question. These people that we point to that, man, they're impressive leaders. Do you ever see evidence of the spirit? Love? Gentleness? Joy? Patience, kindness, self-control. Our churches today are full of people that are trying to impress others to get a position of authority in the church. But God says, oh, don't miss this part. I've rejected him. Because his heart's not where it's supposed to be. Go to John chapter 2. You notice I didn't say sound man or sing in the praise team tonight, just for you guys. So you're welcome. John chapter 2, look at verses 23 and 25, through 25. Now when, John chapter 2, verse 23, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Look at that. They believed in him. But Jesus says, actually, it's not faith. I know their hearts. You do realize that there were many disciples that followed Jesus. And in John chapter 6, it says that he turns to him and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And upon hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they went away. Jesus himself said, there's going to be seed that falls on the rocky soil and springs up and sure looks like salvation. But when trouble comes... They fall away because they really weren't saved. They didn't have root. Jesus knew all along that it was a phony conversion. There's a seed that falls on the thorny soil and springs up and fools a lot of people. But in time, you start to see that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it. And they fall away because it wasn't real salvation. You ever thought about Judas? Judas had them all fooled. Well, let me change that. He had them all except one fooled. When Jesus sent them all out two by two, somebody got paired up with Judas. And we don't see it recorded anywhere that anybody came back and said, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? Uh, you know when you sent us out two by two? Judas couldn't do those miracles. Actually, he could. 
The Bible, even Jesus himself said, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, didn't I cast out demons and in your name prophesy? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And when Jesus in the last night before his crucifixion said, um, hey guys, let me tell you, one of you is going to betray me. They didn't all go, we know who it is. No, they're all like, who? Is it me? They had no idea. Oh, there was someone in the room that knew who it was. The hypocrite. The one who all along knew where he really stood. But was more interested in looking like everybody else. The heart that God's looking for, folks, is not one that is impressed with himself and wants others to be impressed too. The heart that God will reward is a heart that understands their brokenness and looks to God for his righteousness. Go to Psalm 51. A lot of us, unfortunately, jockey for position because we want someone to be impressed with us. I remember one time when I was on staff at a church with eight pastors, and I used to always, hey, can I, can I preach? I want to preach. Hey, pastor, if you ever feel sick, just let me know. And I was always pushing to get my name out there. And God had to really work at my heart. He said, Jim, first off, do you believe that I'm able to give you the opportunities to speak when I want to use you? Or do you feel like you have to put your business card out? And secondly, I won't ever use you until your heart's in the right place. Right now, the real reason you want to preach is not because you want to be used by me. It's because you want people to be impressed with how good you are. And he was right. I, wanted to, I knew God had gifted me to preach. And I wanted everybody to know it. Famous preacher, Junior Hill, years ago came to our seminary and he preached a week of chapel services and he made a statement a long time ago back in probably about 90, 91. He said, if you're too little for the big churches, you're too, sorry, if you're too big for the little churches, you're too little for the, try, try to get you, you're too little, sorry, too big for the little churches, you're too little for the big churches. God's never going to use you unless you're willing to pastor the little church. You have to be in the big church, which most pastors try to get. He knows our hearts. So what kind of a heart is God looking for then? Look at Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 51, verses, verses 16 and 17. For David says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. If that's what you're looking for, I'd do it. But I know that's not what you're looking for. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By the way, does anybody know why David wrote Psalm 51? After what? After his sin with Bathsheba. Oh, and by the way, it was a whopper. He not only committed adultery by sleeping with somebody else's wife. When he found out he got her pregnant, he brought the husband back from the war and got him told him, why don't you go home and spend a little time with your wife? See, because Maury Povich didn't have his show at that time to determine who the father was. And so he said, hey, you go home and sleep with your wife. And that way, when she got 
had a baby, everybody would think it was him because he had come home from the war. Well, the man wouldn't do it because he felt principally that, why should I go and sleep with my wife when the rest of the men are out there living in the field and at war? I'm not going to do it. So the next night, David gets him drunk, thinking he'll stumble home. The man doesn't. And so then David has him put to death. Takes, him to, takes her to be, and by the way, David's not convicted. When Nathan the prophet comes, obviously over nine months to a year later, and tells the story that is picturing what David did, David's reaction is, the man that did that should die. And Nathan says the famous line, you're that man. David broke. He didn't say, oh, it's no big deal, you know. I'll try to make it right. You know, I'll send a gift to the family of Uriah. No, he fell before God. Look at verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I have been a sinner from the day I was born. It was passed on to me by being a human. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Don't miss that. That's going to be important later on tonight. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your faith from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Look at what he says. He says, I'm guilty. He didn't say, like Adam, well, it's only because of the woman. If Bathsheba hadn't have been on the roof taking a bath, it's not my fault. I'm a guy. I mean, guys are attracted by naked women. I couldn't help myself. He didn't say that. He didn't, like Eve, say, well, it's the snake's fault. You know, Satan, you know, Flip Wilson made a killing off of the devil made me do it. No, he said, I'm the one. And I'm guilty. And I need you to give me righteousness. I need you to wash me clean. And David was described as what? A man after God's heart. Was David a perfect man? No. Was David as much a sinner as you and I? Yes. But his heart was, when God spoke to him, willing to humble himself and say, you're right and I'm wrong. He didn't try to make himself look better than he was. Do you see what he, you see what I'm saying? He was willing to acknowledge and he wrote a psalm laying out his sin that would be put in the books of the Jews. By the way, you know Paul had that same heart? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And you say, Jim, what does this got to do with giving? We'll get there. We'll get there. Hang on. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How did Paul see himself? As the worst of the sinners. But you know how many Christians around this world fall prey to that lie that, well, yeah, I know we all sin, but I don't sin as bad as that guy. Oh, folks, you don't understand the gospel if you think you have more righteousness because you're a better person than anybody else. My only righteousness, if anything you see is trustworthy or praiseworthy, it's Jesus. There's no Jim involved. So now Jesus says to do our acts of worship solely, our righteousness solely for God's attention and not for man's attention. If you're wanting man's attention, he says, and man's reward, you won't get any from God. But if you want God's attention and God's reward, you're to do your acts of worship with a heart that is only concerned with his praise and his pleasure. Now we will look at Matthew 6, I promise. Go back to Matthew 6. We're going to read it again now. Listen closely to what this passage is saying. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You're going to see. He's never said you're not to be seen by them. We've had people talk, talk, take this passage and teach, don't let anybody see what you're doing. That's not what this passage is saying. He says, don't do it in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. By the way, who are they? Pharisees. Do, as they do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Remember how they love to be called rabbi and be have people impressed with them? But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm going to just tell you, beware of trying to turn Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, into, especially his teaching here on giving, into another law that we have to keep. Jesus is not saying that we should never pass the offering plate in our worship service because that'd be letting people see us give. No, he's speaking to the heart of why we give. Are we giving to please God or are we giving to impress men? And actually, I'm going to show you from Scripture tonight, the Bible shows us that our heartfelt obedience to Christ in our giving and other areas can be an encouragement to others to trust God in their giving as well. Actually, I'm going to show you, the Bible actually teaches us to do our acts before men. Actually, the Bible teaches that you are to give in a way that people see. Just make sure that when you do it, your heart is the right. Because right. remember, God sees in secret. We've always heard that God sees in secret, and so that means private versus public. Isn't that how we've always heard that secret? Private versus public. But according to Psalm 51, you teach me wisdom in the secret. You don't remember that other word that I told you it's going to be key coming up? Heart. When it talks about God sees in secret, he's talking about our hearts. 
He knows the reason why we do what we do. And if it's for him and for his glory, he wants people to see it. He's not saying, don't let anybody see what you do. I can prove it to you. Uh, go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I know that was the passage that was in all of your minds as we've been talking about this. You're like, hey, Jim's talking about 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, look at verses 1 and following. Uh, David is helping collect stuff for the, the gold and the silver and stuff for the building of the temple that he's been told he can't build, but Solomon's to do it. And in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and inexperienced. It is, the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold of the things of go- for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx stones, and for setting, and antimony, and colored stones, all sorts of precious stones, and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I've provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give to the house of my God 3,000 talents of gold, and he lists all that, and then he goes on at the end of verse 5 and says, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord. Then the elders of the father's houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and hundreds and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the word and it lists service of the house of God. And it lists all that they gave. And look at verse uh, eight. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Look closely what David does here as he speaks to the assembly of Israel. He said, guys, because of my power and my authority as king, I had the ability to gather a whole lot of stuff. But not only did I gather a lot of gold and stuff, also from my own personal account, I'm giving this much. And I want to challenge you to pray that what would God have you give to it? Not under compulsion, but freely. And David actually said, here's how much I gave. Now, if David was saying, are you impressed with me or what? Then he'd be sinning, but he wasn't. And here in the passage, it clearly shows that he gave. But don't just build on one verse. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 8. Now, by the way, Don't turn what I'm teaching now into another law that says you have to tell everybody how much you give. You're going to know when God's going to say it's okay to let people know. And you're going to let you're going to know when God's going to say it's not okay to let people know. You have to be led by the spirit. Know how. But don't get in this. When he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Nobody's supposed to know that you give. No, that's not what the Bible's seeing at all. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging earnestly, for, uh, uh, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, the love offering that he was collecting for the Jews in Jerusalem that were suffering. And this, not as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord, they gave to the church, and then by the will of God to us, according, accordingly, we urged Titus that he, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace, which is giving as well. And it goes on in verse 8 to say, I don't say this as a command. I'm not making you have to give, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Here Paul actually points out the giving of the Macedonians. Now here he doesn't say what the number was, but he points out they gave generously, and I want you to do the same thing. But they did it freely, out of their hearts, willingly. Not only is they were able, but beyond what they were able. And their hearts were so much, they were concerned about just giving to God and to what he was doing. They're an inspiration. I deal with lots of churches around the country, and there's one I deal with in Virginia that has gone through a lot of hardship recently when it comes to their parking lot. One night as they were leaving evening service, this lady was driving with her husband in her car across the parking lot and hit a big pothole. And praise God, kept driving. But it was such a severe bump that they got out of the car to go look at what hole they hit, and the hole became a sinkhole. And they just barely survived getting across it. And what they found out was there was a spring running down the mountain underneath their church, and over the years it had been eroding. There were pipes actually that had been built there when their church actually was an old grocery store that had been, they, they, turned, they bought it and turned it into a church. But when it was built, they put in culverts, metal culverts underneath to run that spring water, but they'd rusted away. And little by little, the water had been rushing under the building and eroding the soil. And oh, by the way, they brought in companies to come give an idea of how much it would cost. And if you had seen this parking lot, it's up on the side of a mountain, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And before the, com the company could come and work on it, the hole got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know what started happening in that area? Churches all around started giving to help with the parking lot of this church. And they were encouraged by the generosity of others. Those churches didn't say, well, here's a check. Don't tell anybody where it came from. And they would tell the believers, Second Baptist so-and-so or this other denomination that's a fellow believing church, they gave as well, and this church gave, and they were encouraged by the righteousness of others. By the way, I'm not going to have you turn there. You know in Matthew chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, when Jesus gathers his disciples and he sits there and he watches people giving in the temple? You know the story. And all these people were putting in large sums of money, but then the widow put in a penny, and he said that she's given the most. They gave out of their abundance, but she gave everything she had. If Jesus was teaching in Matthew 6, don't tell anybody about your giving. Don't let anybody see your giving. Why was he pointing out the lady's giving? The, the passage, exactly. The heart. The passage here in Matthew 6 is not teaching like I used to teach. Don't let anybody know what you give. It's okay. Actually, it might encourage some people. But you just need to make sure, though, that this righteousness that God wants the world to see, that you're doing it with the right heart. Because God who sees in secret your heart is going to reward you. Now, we don't have time. we got two minutes left. I'm going to give you some scriptures to write down. I had to do this last night as well, so don't feel bad. We ran out of time then, too. 
The whole passage in Matthew 6 talks about reward, reward, reward. What pleases God, folks? Does anybody know what pleases God? Yeah, broken and tried hard, he won't despise. According to Hebrews eleven six, 6, what pleases God? Faith. You must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently or earnestly seek him. What pleases God, Hebrews eleven six 6, is faith. Listen closely. The Bible says he'll reward faith. By the way, ever since we stopped trying to cover our expenses for just a preacher ministry and started giving everything away, we've, we've had more of an abundance than we've ever had. I'm not kidding you. Folks, I can't give our money away and give our stuff away fast enough. And God just keeps blessing it. Doesn't the scripture say, see if I won't open the windows of heaven? I, don't, I want you to trust me. Just do what I ask you to do. Be giving. Be generous. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Whoever sows sparingly he rewards faith. Write these verses down. Do a little study on your own of rewards. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. That's Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Matthew 6, verse 4, our passage for tonight. We're going to close with one last passage that we're all going to look at. But those passages all deal with the term reward. And you're going to find that reward is all through the scripture. Jesus is coming back and his reward is with him. What is this reward then? You're going to find as you study these passages, these reward passages are talking about fact of all, first of all, that, we can be sa that we're saved is a, is a gift and a reward. But there's more to it than that. There's reward for eternity in heaven. And actually, if anybody tells you this is what the reward's going to be in full detail, they're lying to you because we don't know. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll close with 1 Corinthians 2 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You see it? Folks, Paul himself even saw, said when he got to see heaven, he said, um, I'm not even allowed to describe it. And on top of that, he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present suffering isn't even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Folks, don't store up your treasure here. Store up reward in heaven. How do you do that? By asking God to show you how to give and when to give and where to give. And by faith, do it with a willing heart. And there'll be times he'll say, do it secretly. Don't let people see. There'll be times he'll say, don't be worried about if people see it. Your heart's in the right place and they need to see someone giving with a good heart. Don't turn the teaching of Jesus into another law. That whole passage is dealing with, are you doing your righteous deeds to be seen by others? Or are you doing your righteous deeds because you have faith that Jesus has asked you to and you want him to be seen? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.